Well, hello, welcome to the podcast that we call Faculty and Research. And today we're joined by Mark Murphy, who's the chair of the Department of Philosophy and the McDevitt Chair in Religious Philosophy at, at Georgetown, one of the great honors that Georgetown offers our faculty. Mark, I was looking at your Vita, and there's an intriguing set of books and articles, at least intriguing to my naive mind, that appears to be pecking at the problem of God and morality and divine holiness and things like that. What, what are you doing with that work? What's the intriguing question that you keep posing and elaborating? That's interesting. So the questions that arise in moral philosophy are questions about how people ought to live, what folks ought to do, what's good and what's bad, what's worth pursuing, what's not worth pursuing, what makes for virtues and what makes for vices. And one of the things that is that what one discovers is that a lot of people have very strong views about God's ethics, right? You might think this is only something that's, uh, that people who are religious believers have opinions on, but it's actually something that's actually very widespread among common folk, you know, everyday people in their ordinary lives, and among uh, academics of all stripes. Uh, I discovered this when I was at a conference at Notre Dame, and it was on the character of the God of the Hebrew Bible. And it was a population, the conference was populated by, you know, believers, non-believers, folks of all different religious persuasions. But one thing that I noticed was that people had very, very confident views about what God would do or what God wouldn't do. And there are very famous philosophical theological problems that are sort of predicated on having these kinds of beliefs, right? So the problem of evil, put in a very brief and summary way, is that the world doesn't look the way it would look if God were in charge, right? And this requires people to have a view about what God would do, about the world God would allow, how God would intervene and so forth. This really struck me as a moral philosopher. A lot of the people at this conference were philosophers of religion of one stripe or another, but most philosophy of religion these days, there's been kind of a, of a rebirth or revival of it. Most of the work in it has not been in ethics in any way. It's not been in any sort of moral philosophy. And the result of this is that um, I think there's been kind of a naive sort of assumption that God's ethics is really kind of like ours. <laughs> you know, just, you know, God just sort of does what we would do if like we suddenly had all that power and all that knowledge. But it struck, that struck me as a very naive view and, and in particular, particularly naive, because it seemed to ignore just the you know, enormous uh, amount of work in moral philosophy that's been done questioning sort of what explains why morality has the content that it has, what explains why, moral, why morality has the authority that it has. And this sort of got me off on a project that I've been pursuing for the last 10, 11 years, and that's thinking about God's ethics. <laughs> so, you know, given that God is supposed to be a being who's extremely different from us, and that God's not just one more, sort of one more person among others, but it's supposed to have all kinds of perfections that we don't have, is supposed to be independent in a way that we are not. What difference would this make to, um, to the moral norms uh, that apply to God, or if, or if there are any moral norms that apply to God? So the, the views that I've reached in the book God's Own Ethics was that we would expect God's ethics to be very, very different from our own. That people who sort of assume that God just sort of acts the way we would act if we had lots of power and knowledge they're, they have bad theological views and they have bad views in moral philosophy, <laughs> that, that it's actually, that this is not the sort of view one should take. In the book on divine holiness, I begin to work sort of more positively and think, well, if we, if we want to say negatively that God's ethics is not like our own, 
what positively can we say about it? What kinds of value does God respond to? And that's that's what occasion thoughts on divine holiness. My view is that once we understand what holiness amounts to, we can see that sort of one thing that, that God must respond to is God's own goodness. And this actually makes a big difference to the way that we think about how God will interact with the world. So, so these problems that I've been thinking about, it sort of comes from two sides. On one side, just as almost all philosophical work begins with the philosopher's own kinds of commitments and concerns. You know, I'm a Catholic Christian. I've got these, you know, theistic views. It's like, I don't know how to put them together with other things that I hold in the world. These are puzzles to me. But I'm also a moral philosopher who thinks that, you know, that moral philosophy is, is an outstanding guide to thinking through a very set of, a set of very hard problems um, about the authority and content of morality. And sort of what I want to do is I want to put these things together to get a clear sense about what we should think about this sort of philosophical slash theological issue. Yeah, I love this story because it its origin in a conference is something that people outside of academia don't quite understand how valuable it is for academics to get together and take on together a perspective that stimulates sometimes work for years after. It sounds like that's what happened to you. Is this subfield now uh, energized in a way that wasn't before? I think it is actually. So one of the things that going back to just interactions of people getting together um, where they can listen to talks together, then chat about it afterward and go out to dinner and return to the topic and so forth. It's really a big deal. And just sort of as a side note, there's been, you know, the, the move to Zoom, people said, well, you know, we can do a lot of this over Zoom. It's true. But on the other hand, you don't return to the topic over dinner. You, you don't have the chance encounters later. So Zoom is great for lots of things, but the fertile ground of generating new research projects, in my view, is almost always in real live face-to-face -face encounters of people who have time, leisurely time, right, to spend together and think hard about these sorts of problems. Um, so, so I do think there's been sort of re-energizing of this. One of the things that I've been really grateful to be able to work on, this is actually due to Georgetown's support. So this is actually saying, saying nice things about uh, the, the folks that I've worked for, is that I work together with uh, a couple of philosophers, Christian Miller, who's at Wake Forest, and Chris Tucker, who's at William & Mary. And about eight or nine years ago, actually now it's about 10 years ago, we began talking about the fact that theistic ethics is not nearly as, as well studied as theistic metaphysics or theistic epistemology. So um, there's been a lot of work at the intersection of theism and philosophy, but most of it's about questions of existence, about God's nature, about proving God's existence, about how we know these things. And there's been less work done on these questions of ethics, about how God would act. What difference does God make to the moral norms that bind us human beings? What role does God have in explaining the morality that binds us? And so what we decided to do was we decided to put together a series of workshops, um, rotating among our colleges. Every year, uh, each one of us would take the lead in, in funding it, in, in organizing the stuff on the ground, and basically providing three days where a mixture of invited and submitted papers get together. So junior scholars, more established scholars, just spend a lot of time together giving their talks, but also sort of downtime, working together, thinking through these problems more. And I, I just think that theistic ethics is really taken off over the last 10 years. We just had the most recent iteration of the workshop at William & Mary just a couple of weeks ago, and it was fantastic. And I'm not used to being the old guy at workshops, as I, but, but I am now. Uh, I have to say the junior folk are all right. Uh, they're doing all sorts of wonderful work now. And just It's a real privilege to be sort of part of, of the organization of this and sort of making it possible. It just has done really great things for the field, I think. Uh, and independently, I think people are coming to these questions in a way that really is making the field take off. 
Well, you're so fortunate to have that group, you know, and it sounds like hats off to you for being part of creating the group. Are there debates now in this field? Are there uh, knockdown, drag out intellectual fights of, uh, no, you're just wrong and let me tell you why? Of course. So one of the debates, so I'll just just mention two that I are sort of central to organizing my life. So one of them is just this thing about God's ethics that we were talking about. So the view that I've defended that God's ethics are not our ethics, um, we should not expect the norms that governed God's practical life to be very much like ours. This is an extremely controversial view. It is not looked upon very favorably by lots of folks. Um, a lot of folks have very powerful arguments against me, I will say. But this is one of the things where there's just a lot of good work to be done. And, and it's just, there's been um, previous work on this, but again, advances in moral philosophy make it possible to raise these questions with much greater force and precision than they have been in previous years. So so these are perennial questions. So it's not like Aquinas didn't think yeah. about this. I mean, Aristotle didn't even think that God thought about us. That's how great God is. Like God wouldn't even think about things in this world, on this sort of terrestrial plane. But, you know, we have a different set of tools for thinking about these problems now. And so we're able to sort of carry out these debates, I think, at a higher level of rigor. There's also this debate that's you see among ordinary educated folks, along with the academics who are working on this problem, which is about the explanation, the role that God has in explaining morality. So even within theism, right? So if you think that, hmm, if God really sort of made the world as in charge of everything, surely God has something to do with the moral norms that bind us, right? But there's, again, there's a very strong split there. Some people want to say this is due to God's commanding activity, that God's will somehow makes the big difference to sort of whether things are right or wrong. Some say, no, that's not quite right. Rather that our natures, right? The, the natures that God created um, somehow themselves fix what's morally required uh, of us, what's what we're morally bound to do. So it's sometimes called the debate between natural law theorists and the theological voluntarists, okay? Um, and there are other views as well. This is not exhaustive. But these debates continue. You know, I, I myself, I, I find something sort of intellectually beautiful and attractive about both of these positions. I can sort of see why somebody would go for, for both of them, though I've never been attracted to theological voluntarism myself. I'm a natural law theorist all the way to the core. But just the fact is that these are extremely powerful views, uh, again, susceptible of being worked out now uh, with tools that people who defended these views uh, 700 years ago, they didn't have. <laughs> they didn't have the ability to defend these views with the kind of rigor and elegance that we have now. And I guess sort of part of the joy is sort of seeing these contemporary tools being put to use on these very classic problems. I'd like you to zoom out a bit. One of the things I find interesting uh, as a provost is to see how different disciplines behave, and especially when they're controversies, what happens to a, a subfield. I note that you are actively producing articles and books. And when subfields in philosophy like yours that get hot and filled with debates, is there a move to more article-based case-making so that the speed of the debate cycles increase? I do think that's actually true. So I spent five years as editor of a journal, and you could sort of feel the rhythm. I mean, one thing that's great about being a journal editor, there are some things that are really wonderful about it, I'll say. There are some things that are not, but one of the great things about it is you sort of see the rhythm of a discipline in response to various kinds of stimuli. There's a certain issue that's brought up with particular clarity in a way that sort of generates a bunch of articles getting submitted. Or occasionally, it's just there's a grant. <laughs> You know, in some to work on some problem, and suddenly it sort of makes that field sort of take off. I, you know, it's philosophy has moved. I'm, I'm not a great sociologist of the discipline, I'll say, but I do feel like philosophy is more article centered now than it's been. 
that a lot sort of a lot of people are sort of making their full careers just by writing papers um, in a way of attempting to move the debates one way or the other. That's not my own style, but I do think that in addition to just people want to sort of get the ideas out there uh, that happens when, when, when a debate takes off, I think there's also sort of a general move that this is the place where a lot of stuff happens. I can't work that way. I write papers sort of along the way because I want to get feedback toward a, toward a large view that I can present in a book. But other folks sort of are happy just to sort of make their contributions through articles. I want to take you back to the beginning. I mean, we, we started on what you're thinking about every moment of the day, I, I assume one way or the other. How did you end up here? How did you end up choosing the questions that you're devoting your life to? What's your intellectual journey? So I was an undergraduate at Texas, uh, University of Texas, working on questions of moral philosophy and political philosophy under a philosopher named Robert Solomon, uh, who was a terrific historian of modern philosophy and existentialism, also wrote, for interestingly, for books for popular audiences. He was very good at bringing philosophical issues to a broader to a broader public. And he was just really wonderful to work with. But there was no particular religious or historical orientation to my work at that point. But what Solomon did was he tipped me off on the work of Alistair McIntyre, who wrote big and important books in ethics called, one of them was called After Virtue, it made sort of a huge splash in the early 1980s, and some follow-up work of McIntyre's. And because I was so intrigued by that, you know, he said, you should go to Notre Dame for graduate school, which is where McIntyre was headed. And that's what was really transformative of me. In working on my dissertation at Notre Dame with McIntyre, I was working on political authority. I was thinking of it as sort of, I thought, oh, I'm just a contemporary philosopher working on uh, a problem that's that's vexed a lot of people about the about why we're bound to do what the law tells us to do and in what sense. But because I was working with McIntyre, you know, there was more of a historical orientation to that work. And I got just really into the natural law theory of Aquinas. It was just, this was just, you know, pursuing a question. In, in an area that just most folks hadn't really thought much about Aquinas on political authority, they were focused on the, on modern philosophy and later. And I thought this is a very distinct way of approaching this set of problems. And it got me interested in natural law theory sort of on, on its own account. So this is just a matter of you, you start pursuing a problem, you sort of find where, where there seems to be something intellectually interesting, and you sort of take the deep dive from there. And that's sort of what spurred sort of the, the first half of my, of my scholarly career was working on questions of natural law theory. Let me probe, why did you think this might be a way of life for you? It seems like oh. you, you, you made a decision pretty early yeah. as things go that, gee, maybe this is how you'd spend your life. Do you remember that moment? And oh, sure. I can I can talk about this. So so th this is the deep dive. So I was raised in far north Dallas. Um, my parents still live there. And neither of my parents went to college. They very much emphasized the value of learning uh, and of intellectual engagement. My father is a one of these lifelong learners. He knows a tremendous amount about physics and the natural sciences. You know, So there was kind of a model in front of me of, of how valuable learning was. My dad also kind of goaded me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> questions that I now identify as philosophical questions. At the time, I just thought they were interesting questions. And they thought, I think, that they were training me to be a, a lawyer, which would have made them really happy. Less happy when I went to Texas and I discovered that my people were philosophers. These, that the questions that, that my dad had intrigued me with, that I found very, very puzzling, were actually studied at great depth, again, with rigor and imagination and seriousness by a whole discipline. And I'll tell you, Bob, that one of the things that sort of delighted me that I didn't really expect, which is sort of how egalitarian philosophical discussion would be, that you'd be in a room and there'd be an 18-year-old who just barely started, and there'd be, you know, 25-year-old graduate students. And yes, you know, everyone could say something, and yes, you might get blistered. <laughs> 
it, it, it made, but the focus was on the problem. And this was just, this was a revelation to me. I couldn't believe that there was a whole discipline where these questions could get raised. And the very idea that I could actually stay and keep working on these problems and this, I could continue until someone said, you have to stop. That was just unbelievable to me. So I've always, you know, even in late high school, early college, you know, I was inclined toward philosophical questions. I discovered in, in college at the University of Texas that this could actually be sort of my way of life. And uh, it's been, you know, a glorious thing since then. I, lo- I love my discipline. Uh, I love college campuses. I haven't found a college campus that I'm not happy on. It was just sort of me immediately sort of being grabbed by a whole, uh, by a whole field. So there's another part or another component of the story you told, I think that I'd like to pull a string on, and that is the role of mentors. And it sounded like you had one that was important to you. So say a little more about reflecting back on those moments and what he meant to you. This is going to make me choke up a little. So I had Bob Solomon for, it was a year long philosophy class in a, you know, sort of a weird major at Texas called Plan 2, which is like this sort of broad liberal arts curriculum that, you know, you apply into and it sort of makes your life. So Bob was my, almost my Plan 2 philosophy instructor. And he knew I was into philosophy. I really cared about it. Bob was the sort of person who socialized with his students. He would have gatherings for them, you know, a hundred people in their class. He would have them either over to his house in Westlake Hills or out to a park in Austin and and feed us and all that. He was just really wonderful that way. Bob knew that I was about to start to work on a, on a thesis and plan to uh, senior thesis. He knew I cared about questions in political philosophy. So one of the things he suggested was that, why don't you spend a summer as my research assistant? I'll pay you. You can, you know, you'll be able to, to stay here during the summer. And he was working on a book on justice that came out. I don't forget how many years now, but it came up, published under the title A Passion for Justice. Along the way, Bob said, there's no really good anthology for teaching courses on justice. Let's start working. Why don't you help me sort of figure out some classic and contemporary readings? And so I was working on that as well. And and Bob eventually said, you know, you're my co-editor. <laughs> this, in terms of mentorship, I can't even sort of express the fact sort of what difference it made that there was someone who both was paying enough attention, even with this large group to sort of know that I cared about the discipline and wanted to go further in it, that he wanted to give me hard jobs along the way. And this is the last thing, that he wanted to recognize my accomplishments, what I had done for the project by including me uh, as his equal on the cover of the book. Bob was fantastic. And and I, I think my situation with him was unique in one way. I said it was a very close relationship. And you know, I not all of his people went off to graduate school in philosophy. It was unique in one way, but Bob was a mentor for lots and lots of people who made a big difference in the life. Bob died young. Uh, he died about 15 years ago. He sort of knew his whole life that he had a heart defect that could take him at any time. I didn't know this until after he had died, but he was just just played such a huge role of someone who sort of identified and supported. You need different kinds of mentors. So if I could talk about this just a little bit more. So my mentor in graduate school was McIntyre, and McIntyre was very different. He was not the friendly with everybody sort of person, but he was very honest and straightforward with me that many of the things that I thought were philosophical skills were actually vices. <laughs> so I came into graduate school with a pretty high opinion of myself, Bob. And you know, th- there's a certain cleverness and quickness and so forth. And he was saying, you know, this is actually keeping you from being a good philosopher. You need to slow down. And it was not just a matter of, I mean, and he was actually even willing sometimes to use the language of virtues and vices, that in, in some ways, I was actually feeding a vice of mine by wanting to sort of show off and sort of look really smart, when really it's like, you, what you really want to do is focus more on the problem and do it dealing with it patiently. And you need that kind of mentor as well, somebody who has the kind of standing uh, to tell you that, look, really, there's something here that's preventing you 
from being all that you can be. You need different kinds of mentors. And not everybody has the kind of, I couldn't be a McIntyre. I don't have the kind of gravitas and whatever to be that sort of person. But it's really important that there be folks who have that ability and that people get have different kinds of mentors uh, in, able to, in order to become sort of as good uh, in their field as they can be. But even though they're different, I get the sense that you felt that they cared about you. Yeah. Let me zoom forward. So uh, you finish your dissertation, you're off and you become an academic and you have the three balls that all academics have to juggle of teaching and research and service. You and your life, I know, have taken all three of those very seriously, but some find juggling those three balls kind of tricky. Tell us how you figured it out for you and how you uh, have succeeded on all three of those in a remarkable way. It's a really good question, sort of how to juggle these things. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure that I've ever really figured it out as well as I could. So the first thing is you need to choose a department that actually gives you appropriate service requirements at various stages in your career. That's something that's that's a gift of fortune rather than anything that one can do for oneself. But that's one thing that I had going for me, which is that I was in a department. I've been at Georgetown for 27 years. I was in a department where the younger folks, the, the more junior folks were given, you know, appropriate service assignments. And so it was not crushing. It was not overwhelming. Uh, and if departments don't do that, then it's really, really hard for junior faculties to succeed. So one thing is that I think people need to be able to keep their teaching under control. I think that research is often extremely difficult and stressful. And I think that for a lot of folks, teaching, no matter how much we complain about the amount of time that we have to spend teaching, it can be kind of a refuge for people, and they can spend a lot more time in it than really they should. So part of what I think has helped me as an academic is to sort of you know recognize that you can be a very good teacher. You can teach classes that are really good without preparing, 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 spending, you know, allowing it to sort of swallow up your life as a kind of an avoidance strategy for having to face the fact that there are research problems that are hard, that you don't know exactly how it's going to go. With teaching, there's a kind of an instant reward to it. Class goes really well, right? Students write a good paper, you know, and then the semester wraps up in a kind of a neat thing at the end. That kind of immediate reward is something that can seduce you, right? So I think the story about academics is, oh, they spend all their time on research and they don't spend enough time on teaching. I also think that the, other, that the opposite is true. I think sometimes uh, academics' lives are made harder because they allow themselves to go way past what they should be doing in terms of devoting time to preparing for teaching. You can prepare. You should always be prepared going into a classroom, but allowing it to swallow up your research life, it's not good for you. The other thing is that there's a kind of sympathetic relationship between teaching and research. I think that you know this is sort of obvious for people when you're talking about higher level teaching graduate seminars and upper level undergraduate. It is just not true in my view that your research life and your teaching life should come apart even when you're teaching like lower level classes. I think that when you're doing introductory courses or courses at a lower level, I think there's a thought, well, these are my service courses and my service courses are something that really does keep me away from my research. I think that's just not true. At least in philosophy, there's enough variation in terms of what you can offer in introductory courses where you can, in a way, skewing is the wrong word, but you can emphasize things that are of deep importance to you in your ongoing research. And I think there's nothing that focuses the mind on presenting ideas clearly <laughs> than having to explain what's important about your research to extremely smart and sometimes skeptical Georgetown 18 and 19-year-old students who are doing philosophy requirements. Okay, So I can trace some of the work, the book on divine authority that came out in 2002. I presented a lot of these arguments in my intro ethics classes and talked through them 
problem with them. Uh, and it made a difference to you know, their passages of argument that actually came out of discussions with the Georgetown undergraduates. I teach a class, a 100 level. That means it's still fulfilling general education requirements. Most of the students are not majors on philosophical reflection on the Christian creeds. And papers that I've written were the result of throwing out some ideas in class or noticing what students were skeptical about, working through the ideas with the students, and then writing it up as, as uh, papers. So I do think that if we're really unimaginative, we can think of teaching as just you know, taking away from our research time. But I do think that with some imagination and care, you can sort of foster a kind of synergy between your research and your teaching, even at levels where you just might not think it's possible. I think sort of integrating one's interests with one's scholarly life when it's possible is a really huge thing. This is back to the thing that you said about surprising interactions that sort of make a difference. I was in another kind of conference as a junior scholar where a senior scholar was saying that the day my research life really took off was when I began working on things that were most grabbing of me. (laughs) That sort of really spoke to my art. And I sat there and I thought, I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. I want to do that. And I had just started at Georgetown and Georgetown was a place that basically said, you know, we want you to kind of do that, <laughs> you know, do the sorts of things that sort of really speak to you. And we kind of trust you to do a good job of it. And that's when I began doing sort of more work on this connection between theism and ethics in ways that just really, I thought, hmm, I don't know if this is really sort of respectable in the right way, but that's where my research really has made more of a contribution than any other areas. So this sort of integration between one's sort of personal commitments once in one's academic life, between one's research and one's teaching, I think that's a really important thing sort of overall to foster and not to feel like you're disintegrated by your academic life. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark, so much for this. It was greatly enjoyable. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me.